We end 1 Samuel today. The title of the sermon is, Thus Saul Died. Isn't that encouraging? But it's in the text. And unless the Lord Jesus comes back again, thus we die. Let's read the text together. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 31. There's only 13 verses. We've had some long readings, haven't we? This is not so bad. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Golboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshon. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshon. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And they fasted for seven days. Lord, we know that song, I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you. Well, in this half hour that we spend together in this text, we all need you. Somehow you speak through your word. Somehow you speak through ministers of your word. And please, do not let this be the exception. Can you help me to share what I've learned this week and was encouraged by? And may you do some work in the hearts of friends here. And may this even be the day when someone who doesn't know you calls upon you to be their Savior and Lord and friend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was born in 1969, so I was a teenager in 1984. There was the musician Rockwell who made the one hit wonder that he did. I always feel like somebody's watching me. I moved here in 2005 and made new friends and went to visit some friends. And uh, when, I, when I walked into their kitchen, they had this iMac on top of a counter. And there on top of the counter was a post-it note over the camera. Uh, it's kind of curious to me, kind of conspiracy theory geeks of some sort. What's going on with these new friends that I've made? Oh, they were in the know. 
I mean, they had some military in their background, kind of a, a naval officer who had a daughter go to Clemson who may have interned or not for the FBI. We had a son that went to uh, one of the military academies and another one that graduated and worked for an, uh, an organization up in Washington. And he knew things. And I could tell you about him, but if I did, he'd have to kill us. But they seemed to have this idea that someone may be able to tap in and watch. Maybe Mr. Snowden wasn't all wet when he kind of outlined the idea that you have the government, the CIA, who can know what you search on the internet and know what you say on the phone. And how many of us have been having a conversation on a sofa with a friend and then later on on Facebook or some place we find that we have these advertisements that seem to have come our way accidentally. You ever feel like maybe someone's watching you? The Bible says that's absolutely true. That God is always watching. We know that God is omnipresent. That's a big, fancy theological word that just means omni-all, present. He's here. So wherever you show up, he's already been there. And when you leave, he's there and wherever else you're going to go because he's everywhere present. So just imagine... How are you going to hide from this God who's always there, always watching? More than being omnipresent, he's omniscient. That means when he's in your presence, you can't put up a, a front. You can't wear a mask. You can't hide anything from him because he kind of reads your mind like an x-ray machine reads your body. He gets way past your externals and he sees your internals the bible says before a word is on your tongue he knows the word that's going to be on your tongue and out of your mouth he never learns he's never surprised he's never really frustrated because not only is god always present all-knowing knowing all the actualities and even the potential things that can happen. He knows it all. But he's not frustrated because he's omnipotent, all-potent, all-powerful. He does whatever he wants to. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, we say he upholds, he directs, he disposes, and he governs all things of all people. This is who our God is. He is in charge of the spiritual realm. So whether we're talking about Lucifer or Gabriel or angels or deacon, demons, deacons, demons <laughs> or principalities and powers and rulers and uh, the council of the gods and whatever term you want to use for that part of creation that's not us, that, that spiritual realm, he's sovereign over it. The Bible says he's sovereign over the temporal he is the one who speaks into existence the world in the space of six days. Out of his mouth came forth everything that is. He's the one who created it. He's the one who cursed it. He is the one who upholds it. He is the one that might let it wind down as he wants, and he's the one that's going to kill it when he decides it's done. Global warming, ah, it's coming. Climate change, that's what God is doing it's really not us that are in charge of this temporal realm. We got a bit bloated in our importance there, I think, sometimes. How about the temporal realm? Yes, that's God. How about the social realm? People. 
oh, there are some important people out there. We've got Bezos, and we've got Musk, and we've got Buffett. God is the one who gives men anything they have. God is the one who establishes someone who's at the high point in her life, maybe like a, a Taylor Swift. He's also the one who takes down someone like a Megan Rapino whenever he desires. There is a God, regardless of whether one wants to admit it or not. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. Yes, what's going on in the Middle East is really bad, but he is the God of Hamas. He's the God of Israel. He is the God of Putin, Chi, Kim, Khamenei, and Biden. And it's been helpful for me to remember that he is the God of Horizon Church and all things ecclesiastical. Mellow out a bit, Joe. Relax. Stop reading your press briefings. You're not that important, and nothing you do is that important, for it is God who is the Lord of his church. It is God who pours out his spirit when he wants to, and God who puts out lamps when he wants to, Revelation tells us. He's the God who builds his church. He's the God who destroys it when he wants to. He's the one who fruits it in any way he desires with the gifts that he gives. Our job is just to be responsible, be faithful, work hard. Yes, I guess what we do is important as he does it through us, but stop thinking too highly of ourselves. It is God who does what he wants. He's omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. And how about a fourth characteristic? Mysterious. I got questions. I have no clue why God wanted to create a garden and put a tree in it to tell people that they couldn't eat from. <laughs> or why God hates Lucifer with all of his being, loves his children, and then let Lucifer even take foot in that garden in the first place. And if God looked at Adam who stood by and watched Eve ate, what was God doing as he stood by and watched Lucifer tempt Eve to give some fruit to Adam? And if God someday will make us, remake us, free will individuals in glory who in our own free will will choose in our free will never to sin, why couldn't he have chosen to create free will individuals like that in the first place in the Garden of Eden? I got questions. Do you have questions? We could keep going on and on and on and on. Why did God bring up Job's name before Lucifer? Why did God say, Sarah, you're going to have a child and make her wait decades? Once the child came, why did God tell Abraham, let's go put a knife in his chest when he really had no intention of Abraham ever putting a knife in his chest? Why does God do this circumcision? I could come up with a thousand other ways. I want to say better, but I want to be careful here. A thousand better ways of saying I'm in the covenant community of God. And that just gets us to the book of Exodus. We could keep going throughout all the Bible books and ask question after question. God is mysterious. And in what have we seen in 1 Samuel? God is odd in what he does with Saul and with David. He knows Saul. Remember, he's omniscient, omnipresent. He's there. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the disbelief, the passivity, the folly, the impatience, and the disobedience of Saul. How Saul will hate God's new plan and especially God's new man. 
He knows how Saul will be characterized by dishonesty, injustice, murder, and genocide. His self-worship will transition into false worship, and by the end of the story, demon worship. God will speak to him and call him to himself, but Saul will not repent. He's what we call incorrigible. And incredible damage is being done to the Messiah, David, the new anointed one, and all David's followers and family and friends. God knows Saul. Why does he let him do that? But it gets weirder, more mysterious, if I want to be careful with my language. He not only knows Saul, he blesses him. Knowing full well the dog he will become, he allows him to be born in the chosen nation. He allows him to be born in a pretty important family with some degree of wealth and notoriety. And then God comes to him and he calls him to serve as king with all the benefits of the royal court. God then sends him Samuel, so he has a divine prophet guiding him. God lets his spirit fall on him from time to time. So now he's empowered by the spirit. And if that wasn't good enough, he sends him David, who's going to be this giant, defeating, musical exorcist who serves him well. Saul wins wars. He rules over his people. He enjoys a fair amount of of, of applause or prosperity. People like him. They praise him. What is God doing? It just doesn't make sense how God would know how rank that guy is going to be and then give him some sort of blessings that are in abundance. And I know sometimes we look around and say, why is God blessing the unrighteous? Why does he let them get away with it? More than that, why do they thrive? Yes, Saul had his day in the sun. And it brings up deep thoughts. Upholding, directing, governing, disposing? What are you doing, God? Are you silent? Why won't you answer me when I call? I mean, am I not praying for the right things? You're so confusing, God. Why won't you at least help me think my thoughts after you? It's just so hard. Why, why do you want the hard road for me, God? I call those deep thoughts. And I distinguish those from wrong thoughts. Because I think Jesus had all of those at times and even asked and prayed, God, can't we just take this cup from me? But quite often then we transition into these things that are wrong thoughts, like God must be angry with me, which is why I'm hurting so. Or God is is slow. He should be faster than he is. I don't like his timetable. He's wrong. Or he's distant. Maybe God doesn't care for me while I hurt. Or he's weak. He's doing the best he possibly can. Or or he's just wrong. As Megan Rapinoe said this week with some expletives, my ripping my Achilles tendon in my final soccer game absolutely proves there's no such thing as a God. She went to the point where he's either wrong or he's non-existent. You know that song, Do You Feel the World is Broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? 
We do. The next verse says, does the Father really love us? I got to think that Job and David were tempted to have thoughts like this. And as I've meditated on it, when a man in this church finds that his wife has cancer again, I think he may be tempted to have these thoughts. When someone finds their grown young man taken from them in the prime of his life as a father, I think we probably would have a tendency. I would want to ask God not only deep thoughts, but I would have wrong thoughts and I would make accusations at him. That would be me. If someone harmed my children, watch what happens with Joe and Laura as we come out screaming, where are you and who do you think you are messing with my precious children? How about when you're holding your grandson like was done this week when I went up to Chattanooga and you're sitting there and you see your wife sitting there and she just starts tearing up because she wants her dad to be there who's not here anymore. And over and over again, she just wonders, why is my dad gone when he loved Jesus and all these old dirty men who don't care get to live and thrive? What's going on? You know, Beth just wants to love her husband. She brought her son from the nursing facility in New York down to Greenville so that this week she might be able to show him love. And now she's in a hospital with pneumonia while her son and her husband who are disabled are at home. They all three have to be going, where are you, God? What are you doing we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they go run astray. And we say, I thought you were the covenant God who makes promises to us. Or we're Christians in the United States of America, and we say, what in the world is going on? How much longer, God, can you allow the unrighteous to thrive? Is this really the best plan you have for us? But this is the point of 1 Samuel 31. God is not quick to express his day of vengeance. With Adam and Eve, he showed unfathomable grace. With Abraham and Sarah, he kept running after them. All the uncles and brothers of, Ju of Jacob, as they, all of them were, were, were scoundrels, but God just kept loving them. He didn't pour out wrath quickly on Moses, Aaron, and Israel. Samson in the whole book of Judges shows that God is always calling his people back to repentance. Isn't David throughout 1 Samuel, hasn't it been a story of a guy who's a saint, who's a sinner, who gets himself in trouble, and yet God is not quick to drop the hammer. God keeps coming after him and calling him home. You can keep reading and find Hezekiah, Manasseh, Jonah, Nineveh, and Nebuchadnezzar as God just keeps showing unfathomable grace to people because he's not quick to express his day of vengeance. As a matter of fact, when God wants to describe himself, yeah, he's holy. He always hates sin. And he has no delight in the death of the wicked. He is merciful, gracious, patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, calling to all men, desiring repentance, even willing to relent or repent, as the text tells us 
Saul in chapter 13 had Samuel come to him and preach a sermon. Saul in chapter 15 had Samuel come to him and preach a sermon. And on both of those, one, he was going to lose his kingdom. The next, he was going to lose his family. But I got to think that my Bible is full of stories of people who hear the words of condemnation from God. They respond with repentance, and God loves to shower unfathomable grace on those people. I have to think that if Saul had done more than just have regret and remorse, worldly sorrow, if he really would have repented and not been incorrigible, that God would have loved to have shown unfathomable grace to Saul. But in chapter 31, the day of grace is over. And God does drop the hammer. The day of vengeance is finally expressed. So while God is not quick to express his day of vengeance, God is not slow or bashful when he determines to express his day of vengeance and vindication. In your own devotions, you can go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you'll find at the very beginning of the story that Hannah is praying, and then she starts prophesying, and the whole book is set out as God is the one who rescues the brokenhearted, and in the day when he decides it's that time, watch out. The hammer is going to drop. You get to First Chronicles, which parallels parts of Samuel. And this is the divine conclusion of what happens. Let me read First Chronicles chapter 10. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And so, we have vengeance and vindication. And that's what you see in chapters 28 through 31 at the end of the book. You've been going through it with, for months with me. And we finally get to the point where you start realizing, okay, we have David traumatized in chapter 28 by the Amalekites. We have Saul traumatized by the Philistines. But there's a huge difference. David, in his trauma, inquires of the Lord. Saul, at probably at the very same time, some people think, inquires of the witch of Endor. Saul, as a response, is not strengthened to the Lord. He is dropped to his knees for three days. He had no strength and could not eat. The exact opposite words are said in the text of David. He is strengthened by the Lord. Over here, God looks at David and promises him victory. Go, fight, you're going to win. He promises Saul defeat. David goes and enjoys victory. Saul experiences only defeat. As a result, David gains back his family on the exact same day, I think, that Saul lost his family. And the end of the story is David prospering his people as they are plundering where the Philistines are here occupying. And in the end, David and his God, the Messiah and his Father, are honored. And it's hard to have a more dishonorable ending than what you see and what we read in Psalm 1, in 1 Samuel 31 for Saul as he is stripped dismembered 
posted in various parts of the city as they're using him to spread their version of good news amongst the pagans. This is what we see. The day of vindication. The day of vengeance comes. God is slow. But he's not bashful when it finally comes. So how do we apply this? I want to take you to a New Testament passage and end with this. 2 Peter. Oh, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Know this, Christians, saints. Oh, scoffers are coming in the last day. Yeah, they're going to follow their own sinful desires. They're going to say, where's the promise of His coming? All things are just going to keep going like normal from the beginning of creation. They deliberately, intentionally overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago. Earth was formed out of water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. You see that? They're going to miss it. They're going to look... They can look at Scripture and they're going to ignore the Noahic flood. They're going to look at science and they're going to look at geography and they're going to ignore it. There's evidence out there, but they're scoffers. We don't believe these promises. We don't believe the words of God that come from the Word of God. That's who they are. We keep reading. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow as some count slowness. He's really not slow. He's patient towards not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But know this. The day of the Lord, the Lord of the day, will come like a thief. Heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. And the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Yet that's what some people are going to experience on that day. But according to his promise, the ones you're supposed to be remembering from the first verse, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Paul writes about this, skipping down to verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, let's think differently. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It appears that there are two groups 
there are those with Saul, and there are those with the Messiah and his friends and followers and family. At this point, I see two calls to repentance. One is the call to Saul, to people like Saul. Do not ever think that long-suffering means he lacks intention to damn. Do not ever get confused between patience and passivity. Don't think for a moment that he's changed his mind. He is the God who makes promises and he does not lie. And so there is eternal damnation coming. And the Lord is slow, but not like some people think he's slow. He's slow because he's still calling people to him. He's allowing people to have that opportunity. Any whosoever wants him can have him. And he's sitting there preaching to all. And though all men naturally say, no, 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 he still draws some and calls some. It's his desire to bring many people into the kingdom. And I don't know which ones are the elect and which ones aren't because I can't read the hidden code on their chest. But all I do know is this. He's out there offering. He's commanding. He's waiting. He's angry at sin. He's going to damn sinners and this earth before he recreates the new heavens and new earth. It's coming. Don't ever get confused. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord has brought you here. Maybe you're watching online or over TV or whatever. This is a day in which anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Won't you come? Or will you continue to prove to be incorrigible like Saul? Repent. Thus, Saul died. Thus, this year, Art Pearson died. Jeannie Ellison died. Mitchell Morton died. Diane Clayton, Caton died. John Vry died. But they didn't die like Saul died. Those people knew Jesus Christ. Those people are enjoying heaven right now. Their suffering is over. They only, I think, according to Revelation, have one more question they're asking God. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We got to go down and get my loved ones because this is absolutely fantastic. How long, O oh Lord? And I think the Lord is looking at them saying, don't think I'm too slow. My timetable is not yours. But don't for a moment think that I've changed my mind. The day of vindication, it's coming. The day of vengeance, it's coming. I think Christ is looking at all of us who are like Saul and he's saying, repent. But I also think he's looking at all of us who are like David and his followers and his friends and family who may be tempted to go from deep, troubling questions to wrong questions. And he's saying right here, repent.
don't you think for a moment that I'm not in charge. I know what I'm doing. I've got a plan. I'm omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and I am mysterious. Do not listen to the scoffers. Listen to my word and grow in grace and knowledge. Eternity's coming. I promise.